Thank you, Stephen. That was great. Appreciate it. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 11. <clears throat> you remember, just a quick recap, last week we looked at uh, the aspect of pride, and uh, we looked at uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, which really talked about pride, and then I took you back to a story in the Old Testament, Second Kings chapter 5, that really illustrates what Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2 and 3 talks about. And there's so much of the Bible that works its way that same way. You know, a study of pride uh, is what we did last week, and it was one of the greatest studies you'll ever take on how it affects everything in your life out of that chapter. That chapter is the definitive chapter on it, and it really lays out all the issues. And uh, how that when we get prideful, and it really doesn't matter if we're saved or we're lost uh, when it comes to pride. Uh, But in both cases... Uh, we get absolutely nothing from God. And I gave you probably one of the key principles that, uh, uh, that you never want to remember, uh, that you always want to remember, and that is in Leviticus 26, 19, where it talks about that uh, uh, power being pride and that the heavens are as iron and the earth is as brass. That simply means that when you get out of fellowship with God, that you get nothing from God. There's nothing that flows your way because of the fact that your fellowship has been broken. And that's a great a principle to remember. And it, it, when you stop and think about it or put it in your own life or everybody's associated with other people. And, you know, the answer, that answers so many questions that you see that you have to uh, deal with in life. Uh, we saw how that the truth of God will always be with the lowly. That little servant girl. Naaman couldn't get to God himself. He, he couldn't get there by his own way, but a little gal out of Israel showed him how to get to the truth of God. And we saw how that God will always use the lowly to get the truth of God uh, out to whoever needs it. It'll never be through the prideful. You know, I was thinking about this last week, and I didn't have time, so I thought I'd throw it in today. But a great parallel passage that goes along with last week found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, where it says, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things of the mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God hath chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. And we saw all these great principles in the life, as I've already said, a, name, a man by the name of Naaman, and how that uh, with all of his glory and all of his honor, he came to the man of God, and he wanted to get clean on his own terms. He was a leper, and he wanted to, he wanted to circumvent what the man of God said because he thought he deserved something special with God. And we saw the great lesson that we all have to come to God just as we are and put our pride aside. Now, today... We'll begin to move on down through this chapter. And this chapter, you know, almost each verse uh, has a great principle. So I chose uh, to do four or five uh, uh, a week, you know, and just comment on them. I don't want to give you so many that you you lose focus on the ones I give you, but I want to give you enough to keep you uh, busy throughout the week. And so I want to look at five areas of our lives today that uh, out of this passage, God will certainly open up. He says in Proverbs chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 4 now. He says, Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. 
The righteousness of the upright shall deliver them, but transgressors shall be taken in their own naughtiness. When a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish, and the hope of the unjust man perisheth. The righteous is delivered out of trouble, and the wicked cometh in his stead. A hypocrite with his mouth destroyeth his neighbor, but through knowledge shall the just be delivered. Now, Father, I thank you for the Word of God today, and help us as we come down through these passages here and look at these verses. Uh, Lord, uh, help us to glean out of these what we need for our own lives. There's some great things here that we need to see and we need to learn. Help us to always uh, lay out the Bible in all the doctrinal things and all the exciting things and help us never to uh, forget the historical aspect of it. But Lord, in our everyday life and the things that we have to face, uh, always allow us to uh, look at the practical, the things that, that make of the difference in our lives on a daily basis. <clears throat> and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now I want to look at, as I said, five basic life principles today. These are some of the most basic things that <clears throat> you'll ever get into. I must confess to you that <clears throat> this won't be like last week where it was a bit of a raw, raw time when you get into those types and you can lay all that stuff out and you see it for the first time. This is where the rubber meets the road here. These are the issues of life that we face every day. And learning these, and even more than learning them, but getting the ability to observe them in action. I think that's what's really important. In the lives of people, in your own life first, they will be invaluable. The book of Proverbs uh, are the staples of our lives. It's the foundation of every fabric of everything that we do in this world. And all of the people in it are subject to these very principles. And if you're paying attention and you're looking around, you can see them at work all the time. And again, I want you to notice, and I want to draw your attention to this, that uh, each one of these is a negative and then a positive. Uh, the, first, the first part will be negative. The second part will be positive of the verse. Or in some cases, the first part will be positive, but the second part will be negative. I told you, as you get into the book of Proverbs, this is how it, it really works its way out. You know, seeing that negative and that positive together is really the key to understanding the book of Proverbs. There's hardly a verse that does not lay itself out where you're forced to look at not only the negative, but also the positive. Not only are the negative and the positive key to the book of Proverbs, but understanding the negative and the positive is the key to life. Uh, there's negative things in life and there's positive things in life. I said last week that we want to change the circumstances that we find ourselves in. <clears throat> we can find ourselves in a situation. <clears throat> maybe we caused the situation ourselves. Maybe we didn't. But we find ourselves in a situation that is not comfortable, bumps us outside our comfort zone, takes us into some things with some feelings and some emotions that maybe we don't want to deal with. And uh, <clears throat> the first thing we all do as God's people the first thing we all do is start praying to God for God to take away the circumstance, to change the circumstance. And, you know, that's the worst thing that anybody could ever do. God is the one who allowed the circumstance to come into your life in the first place if you're a child of God. Now, you may have been out of fellowship with God and got yourself in the mess, but you know what? It's your mess. You own it. And many times we want to pray to God to change the circumstances or the situation we fail to see that God allows a situation for to change us. And we don't want to do that. It's easier for us to change the situation because deep down inside, we really don't want to change ourselves. 
And life is built around positive experiences and negative experiences. And Proverbs is the book that shows you your need to understand both. Now, we live in a world today where, honestly, um, they don't want any negative. They want everything to be positive. We have, in this society that we live in today, it's all moving toward taking the negativity out of everything. Uh, We don't, in sports, we don't want any more losers. We don't want anybody to have to get their psyche fractured because of the fact that they lost a ball game or they lost this. So instead of giving first-place trophies and second-place trophies, now everybody gets a trophy. You get a winning trophy and a loser's trophy. But they don't want you to think of yourself as a loser. They don't want you to think of yourself as someone who didn't succeed and and made a mistake and didn't get first place. And, of course, uh, in life, that will never work because the situations in life will never treat you that way. And when you get treat and treated that way as a person growing up, where you're, you're given the idea that, there's, that everything is positive and there's no negative, there's no downside of life, when you get out in the real world, you'll fold up like a broken accordion because it simply doesn't work that way in life. It just doesn't. And we want to make everything acceptable. We have a government that can't uh, look at uh, that the militant terrorism that's out there and call it what it is because it's negative. We want to give it a nice name. We don't, have, we don't have drug abusers anymore. We don't have dope addicts anymore. That's negative. We have substance abusers. That sounds credible, you see. It's got a positive ring to it. We don't have drunks anymore. We have chronic alcoholics, you see. Makes you almost want to be one, it sounds so good. We have done everything in our world to try to get rid of the negative things. And I'm going to tell you, many Christians today, many Christians today, uh, they don't want anything negative in their life. Uh, many pastors, they realize that if you only preach the positive, you feed into the same worldly system that, that, that everybody else feeds into. You don't preach on the negative. You preach on the positive. Why, if you just get up in the pulpit all the time, I mean, honestly, I quit hating to pick on him, but he's a great example. How do you think Joel Osteen fills that stadium down there in Texas every Sunday where you look out there and a place is packed. You know how he does it? He never preaches one thing negative. You put me in that pulpit for one Sunday and I'll clean that place out like a turkey farm day after Thanksgiving. You know why? Because I'll preach the truth of what's negative about life. But man, you can, you can build anything if all you tell somebody is it's all good. I mean, you find that churches will only preach on the positive. They'll never deal with the negative things that we all face. And negative and positive are the reality of life. There'll never be a time in your life where you don't have to deal with negative things and positive things. So when God writes the book of Proverbs, which is about the issues of life, you know what he does? He takes those verses and puts one negative, one positive in the same verse, or one positive and one negative in the same verse. And that's how it works. Now, I get criticized many times, uh, and, 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 and this particularly rightly so. I get criticized many times. Somebody will say, well, you know, he, he's too negative in his preaching. And, and I understand that. You know, he, he, he's negative about other pastors or he, he's negative about other churches or he's negative about people. Well, let me defend myself for just a split second here. It ain't nothing personal. I mean, it ain't nothing personal. I've come to the reality to know that there are some negative things in Christianity and there's some positive things in Christianity. 
Now, you as a Christian may not want to deal with that. You may not want to accept that. But I'll tell you, it's the way it is in life. Dr. Ruckman is, 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 is a man who probably had a great influence in my life of teaching me the Bible and giving me the right Bible. And he's, he, he's wrote a number of commentaries and a number of books. And uh, that's why I announced about Ruth and, uh, and Judges today. But you know one of the things that, that I hear people say about his reading his books all the time, and it's true. They'll say, you know what, I, I like reading this book, but man, he just is so negative about everybody. I mean, he, if he could just quit telling everybody who this jerk is and this clown is and go through all of that and, and, and just get on with teaching the book, I mean, I could get it a lot better. And I understand what people are saying when they say that. But I want to tell you something. On my level, you know how I look at it? When you're done reading his books, you know who stands where. Now, maybe that doesn't help you, but for me, it's invaluable because I get down reading somebody's material over here or get down in church history over here, or get talking about this over here, and I'll find somebody in church history like Origen, like Westcott and Hort, like uh, Dr. A.T. Robinson out of Louisville, and I'll get those, and I'll read that, and the only reason I know they're worthless and clowns and you better watch everything because I read a book one time where a guy preached the positive and the negative. But we don't like that today. We like books that are just all positive. We like books that just have a big a positive smiley face on it. You see, and uh, you know, and God's people today they 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 don't they they don't have the ability to be able to tell what's negative and what's positive anymore, because all of their life they have been given a positive approach to everything. We've taken the negativity out of everything. We don't preach on sin anymore because sin's negative. You couldn't hear in most churches in this city a message on the, here I go again. You couldn't hear in most churches a, a message on the judgment seat of Christ if you stayed up all week long. You know why? It's negative. Nobody preaches on hell anymore. It's negative. Nobody preaches on all of the things that the Bible says are negative. And, we, and the reason because we do that is because we live in a world where people don't want to hear it. You can do whatever you want to do and build the biggest congregation in the world if you just stay positive and don't be negative and don't preach on negative things. And that's, and that's the way it is. But I mean, come on, really. Are you so naive that you actually think that in Christianity there's nothing negative? That every church is a good one? That every pastor follows the Bible? That all Christians only do good? You see, maybe down at the root of that, Maybe the preaching got a little just too close to home for you, see? I mean, we're talking about, we've been talking about balance. You know that 85% of the New Testament, 80, 85% is positive? But you know that 80% of the Old Testament is negative? I mean, what have you been reading? I mean, find something positive in Jeremiah. Find something positive in Ezekiel. Get into the prophets and Hosea and, and Jonah. Find something positive there. Find something positive in Numbers, in Exodus. Why, it's one negativity after the other. But the Bible balances itself out. And Proverbs will always show the negative and the positive, or the positive and the negative. So when I preach, that's just a model for me to follow. I follow the Bible. I told you before. Don't ever emphasize anything more than God does or less than God does. And when you get into the Old Testament, it's negative. 
It's negative, negative, negative. There isn't anything positive in it for the most part to get into some of the millennial passages. But I'm telling you, I mean, you've got to see and understand that positive and negative is just a part of life. Now, let's begin here and look at the first principle in verse 4. And you're going to see this phenomenon of negative and positive, and I'll point it out to you. Riches profit not in a day of wrath. That's negative. But righteousness delivered from death. Now, see, that's positive. Now, all Proverbs from about chapter 10 on, as you find it, goes into this mode till you get up around chapter 30, 31. One verse, half, one verse, half positive, half negative. It's just the way it works. And the reason why, as I already told you, because the book of Proverbs is about the issues of life, and life will have a positive side and a negative side. And a child of God who lacks the ability to identify them for what they are, well, that is just going to get you messed up royally. I mean, you're going to have some real problems in life. Now, the first part says, riches profit not in a day of wrath. Well, I can see where most 21st century Christians wouldn't like that verse. I mean, your, your whole world's about money and possessions. Uh, that's, a, that's a great principle, and we see it lay out three ways in our Bible here, knowing the three applications of Scripture. When he says, riches profit not in a day of wrath, first of all, he's talking about historically Israel's day of wrath. If you don't have these in your Bible, you probably want to put them in. Israel's day of wrath was when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came down in 606 B.C., and Shennacherib of the north and Assyria came down around 587. That put an end to the nation of Israel. They had amassed great riches. They had all gold. They had everything they could ever want. And you know what? In the day that God's wrath fell on them and the Gentile nations came in, didn't do them a bit of good. Didn't do them a bit of a good. Uh, the second one is doctrinally. The doctrinal application, the day of wrath, will be the day of the Lord, second coming of Christ. When the Lord comes back, all the nations, all the kings, all the queens, all the presidents, all the dictators on all this earth and all they have will be gone in a heartbeat. Bible says in Revelation 11 verse 15, uh, 11, verse 15 that the kingdom of this earth become the kingdom of our Lord. So in that day of wrath, it's a second coming and he takes everything, everything you have that you held on to, everything that the nations held on to, Fort Knox, the crown jewels in England, wherever you go in Moscow or wherever you go around the world with all the Saudis and their billions because of all the oils in that day, the day of wrath, second coming, won't do them a bit of good. Now, inspirationally, it'll work for any unsaved man or any Christian, really, who's out of fellowship with God. The day of wrath is God's judgment uh, on a country or it's God's judgment on a person for sin and ungodliness and turning from God. I mean, uh, it, it works just like that. The day of wrath uh, is uh, about us, what we go through. I, I think back of, so a couple of good examples of this is, is in, when the sinking of the Titanic took place in 1912. When the Titanic went down, uh, uh, all, the, uh, all the people on there in first-class cabins, they were some of the richest people on planet Earth at that particular point in time on that ship. And that ship was the its maiden voyage. And America and the world had come, gotten so prideful 
We were in the middle of the industrial age. Things were changing all through Europe. The great monarchs were still in power. America was at her foremost of industrial might and doing some incredible things. And uh, the world got to the place where when they built the Titanic, some wise guy gave the, gave the decree that it was a ship that was so well built, even God himself couldn't sink it. Now, you know, you got to be a fool to say something like that. And, of course, uh, uh, God did sink it on its maiden voyage. And uh, when they found all the bodies and they tried to go back and get the bodies and put them all together, they found a guy by the name of James, uh, John Jacob Astor. He was a billionaire, absolutely filthy with money. And uh, he was uh, coming back from England on the Titanic. And they found his body. And he found his body. He was dressed in his tails and his tuxedo with his life jacket on. And when they looked for some identification, they found $25,000 stuffed in all of his pockets. That's the equivalent today of probably a million dollars. Didn't do him a bit of good. He died with that money in his pockets. In fact, when they pulled him out of the thing, he was covered with soot and crushed to death. They think that one of those gigantic smokestacks as that ship went down, cracked off, and came down and splattered him all over the place. Money didn't do him any good. I think of the stock market crash in 1929. There were people on Monday who were worth millions and millions of dollars, and on Tuesday, they were penniless. And I'm telling you, riches profit not in the day of wrath. When God comes down and does something, brother, whatever you have in your pockets ain't going to help you. Whatever you got in the bank ain't going to help you. There will be for an unsaved man or for a Christian out of fellowship with God, these will be the dead-end streets of life. This will put your priorities in the wrong place, massing the wrong things. And the day when all your money and all your, and all your possessions can't fix your problem. A life of you blessing yourself over getting the blessings of God. A life of making the wrong investments in life which bring the wrong returns. I told you about a guy one time I knew years ago that uh, he, he, was a, he was a miserest scrimper you ever met in your life. This guy probably had amassed at least a million dollars. And, uh, and uh, he, he, wouldn't, he, he had to hoard it all. He didn't trust banks. He wouldn't put it anywhere. He hid it everywhere. And uh, he amassed this great fortune, and, and uh, he put it everywhere and wouldn't tell his wife where it was, wouldn't tell his kids where it was. It was all his money. It was nobody else. It was his. And by the time he got to be about 80 years old, you know what happened? Talk about a God having a sense of humor. He got Alzheimer's disease. And he couldn't remember where he hid all his money. And he ran around the yard, ran around the house on his last day before they put him in a home someplace, and he died. And to my knowledge, nobody ever found that money. He couldn't remember where he put it. And when his day came, all that he hung on to, all that he amassed, he could not only did it not do him any good, he couldn't even find it. Now look at the second part of that verse. But the righteous, righteousness delivereth from death. Now look at that. You know, that's exactly what happened the day we got saved. We got delivered from death. A deliverance took place in our life. Now, look at the word death there. Let me explain that. That doesn't mean that you don't die physically. You do die physically. When he says righteousness delivered from death, he's not talking about physical death. That death there is eternal death, separation from God. And that's how it works. Now, I want you to notice this. He says nothing about the Christian and his riches. 
You don't see in this verse he makes any references to any wealth or the things that the unsaved man can lose, like he talked about in the first part of the verse. And the reason he says nothing about those things is because a real born-again child of God, they don't mean anything to him. He understands. I'll tell you another example on the, on the Titanic. We had J, uh, J, uh, John Jacob Asker, who was the millionaire who died with the money in his pocket. And then it, I think we got it back in a bookstore back there, or at least we've had it, a little biography of a guy by the name of John Harper, who was a Scots preacher who was traveling over to America to preach in one of Moody Bible Institute's great Bible conferences. And uh, he, was a, he was a hellfire damnation preacher. And he didn't make it over on a Titanic either. He drowned. And uh, there's evidence of people supporting the fact that when everybody was in a panic and everybody was trying to do this and do this and buy their way out of this and give money so they could get into the life raft because they didn't have enough life raft and women and children first. There were men dressing like women to try to get in. There were guys with a lot of money trying to buy somebody a seat on that boat. And you know what he was doing? I don't know how many witnesses in his little book testify about the fact that he's back here winning people to Christ in little groups. There was a man that got survived the Titanic. He got pulled out. And he says, I was down in the water. And he said, I was, I was, uh, I was choking and I was freezing to death. And he says, I was screaming, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Oh, my God, what can I do? What can I do? And he says, out of the dark night and the stillness, he said, I heard a voice with a Scottish brogue say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And old John Harper died in that cold water. When they found his body, he had three shillings in his pocket. Big difference from Mr. Astor. And that's what I'm talking about. For a child of God, uh, it's never about the riches of this world, which can come and go, and you can lose them, and mean nothing in time uh, of, of a disaster. It's, I mean, and I'm, I'm all for preparation. I don't take me wrong, but you got some of these people that are way over the top. They believe that the, <clears throat> they that the government's going to collapse, and it probably will. They believe that uh, we're going to be able to attack, and we probably will. So they, they build up in their basement an arsenal of weapons and they build up ammunition. I got news for you. You only got two hands. You can only shoot two guns at a time. And you can have 100,000 rounds down there and 50, and 50 weapons, but if they come over your front yard and your backyard 200 strong, they're going to take everything you got and not even thank you for it. There comes a point. I'm not saying you don't be prepared. I shouldn't say you shouldn't take as many of them out as you can. But I am saying your greatest preparation ought to be in the Lord God. He can get you out of situations you cannot shoot your way out of. But that's about the true riches. Luke chapter 16, verse 11. I always like that. I always like the verse that talks about the true riches is Luke chapter 16, verse 11. I always like that. And that's, and that's you get delivered from all that other stuff. When God saved us, he delivered us from the things of the world. And when we're saved, you and I have been delivered from all that stuff. Bible says in Philippians 4, 19, now my God shall supply all of my need. Malachi 3.10 talks about God's storehouses, and he's got the key to it all. And, I, and I'm not to entangle myself with all the pressures and stress of worrying about worldly things, because I've been delivered. My affections, Colossians 2, are now set on things above, not things of this earth. Matthew 6, 19 says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's a great verse. Now let's look at the second principle, verses 5 and 6 here. The righteous, the righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright shall deliver them, but the transgressors shall be taken in their own naughtiness. It says the righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way. That's positive. You see, when we get saved, basically what happens is, is we receive God's righteousness. God's righteousness defined in the Bible is Jesus Christ. Now, when you get God's righteousness, that means you got Christ. He is God's righteousness. And uh, it says there that the, the righteous of the perfect. Now, let me talk about the word perfect here for a second. Uh, when we get saved, uh, we get divided into two sections, spiritually speaking. You have a flesh, your body, and you have your soul. And those two uh, are uh, either your best friend or your worst nightmare. And the flesh is not perfect, but your soul is, sinless, is sinlessly perfect. One is your old nature, the other one is your new nature, Romans chapter 7. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says, He that is born of God does not commit sin. You see, you can be perfect in some things in your life, but yet you're still a sinner. Because what's saved about you is perfect. And so when he says the righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, he's talking about your relationship with Christ. Now, as long as we follow after God's word and by his spirit, then he through the Holy Spirit will direct us in everything we do in life. Let me give you a couple of great verses here that probably have most of these. Some of you may not. Psalms 119 verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You see, the Word of God illuminates your way through life. We know that the world is darkness. We know that the devil sets all kinds of traps for us in that darkness. And we know that men love darkness rather than light when they're in an unsaved condition, and many of God's people don't care about the Word of God. All they want is the positive. They don't want to deal with the negative. But the Word of God illuminates your path. The Word of God lights where your steps are. The Word of God is your Christian night vision that shows you where all the enemy's traps and snares are that you don't have to fall into them. That's what the Word of God does for you. Then Psalms 37, uh, verse 28, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it simply says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. When you are right with God and you're doing what God wants you to do and you've got a good relationship with Him and you're enjoying yourself in the Word of God, God directs your steps. You don't have to direct your own way in life. That'll get you in trouble every time. You just simply rest back in the principles of God. And every time I read a verse like that, somebody says, well, that sounds great, but how do you do it? God gave you a book of principles. And those principles will order your step. God's not going to come down and say, don't go here or don't go there. God's not going to say, go here or, or forget this. But he'll show you through the word of God what you should do and where you should go and where you shouldn't. That's how he directs your path. And the Bible says, and he delighteth in his way. Now, that's you and me delighting in our way. That's you and me enjoying our life, not enduring our life. That's you and me getting what God has for us, walking with him, him ordering our steps, and us knowing it's the greatest life we could ever have and actually enjoying the life and the process of where we're going with the Lord. 
John chapter 16, greatest chapter in all of the Bible on the Holy Spirit of God. In verse 13, it says the Holy Spirit of God will lead and guide you into all truth. So it says the righteous of the perfect shall direct his way. He will. Now here's the negative. But the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. Now, we like to make life very complicated. I think the reason why we do that is so that we don't always have to do the right thing when it's very clear to what we need to do. I think that we like to cloud things to make it, to make it harder uh, in our own minds to do right when all the time we really know what's the right thing to do. And, uh, and, uh, but it says, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. I can simply tell you this. Life is pretty simple. Whatever stronghold you allow in your life, whatever stronghold you give yourself to, if it's a stronghold of the Word of God and the things of God, or the stronghold of this world, whatever it may be. Whatever stronghold you allow in your life, whatever is controlling you right now more than this book is that stronghold. And you may say, well, I'm here and I got my Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Friday night or Saturday night or next week sometime, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being here today. I'm talking about when you get out there and the temptation comes and we'll see what the real stronghold is in your life. That's what I'm talking about. And life's easy. Whatever stronghold we allow in our lives is the stronghold that will either make our life everything it needs to be or will kill us in time spiritually. Galatians 6, 7 says, I remember I told you there's seven laws in the Bible last week. Here's the second one or another one. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that will he also reap. Now that's the law of sowing and reaping. A lot of God's people today, they want to do what they want to do. They want to sow all the wild oats they can, and then they think that uh, they can pray for crop failure, that it won't happen. But I'm telling you something. You reap what you sow. That's one of the most tremendous principles anywhere found in the Bible. And uh, there's times that I've met people in my life that uh, uh, I felt sorry for them. They had some stronghold in their life that uh, was, 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 had a control over them. And though I tried to help them and I tried to do whatever I could do for them, I knew deep down inside myself they would never break the chains of that stronghold. That stronghold uh, would, would take them to their death. That stronghold would be in their life and keep them from being what God wants them to be all of their life. And it's a tragedy. But it's a tragedy brought on by themselves because they violated that verse. They violated that principle. There's a time that you can go so far in your life and you can forsake the Word of God and the principles and laugh and have a great time, and there comes a point and a time in your life where you can't break the shackles of that stronghold in your life. It's just that simple. And try as you will. Try as you will. Cry as you will. Come to the altar as many times as you can. Come back to church at 9,000 times. I'm, th- I'm thankful. You're always welcome to come back. But I know as soon as you come back, six weeks, you'll leave again. You know why? Because you've got yourself in a situation by your own choosing that the stronghold in your life is so strong, you will never break those shackles. You never will. And I see it unfold in people's lives all the time. They think that they can just do whatever they want to do, and there's no cost involved. It comes down to us, that that inside of us, that makes us think that we can always beat the system. We'll see an alcoholic who's down in Skid Row, down at the mission someplace. You'll see some drug addict with his mind fried out and brains all over the place. 
and you actually see those persons and see the end result of that lifestyle, and yet you and I inside, when we're faced with that, you know what we actually think in the face of seeing those things? We think that we're smarter than they are and we can beat it. No, you can't. No, you can't. Last week, we talked about the power of pride. The power of pride is just a refusal to get right with God. And it brings about heaven as iron. It brings about earth as brass. It brings about that you can't get anything from God. And everything on this earth, brass, is a judgment against you. Job chapter 9, verse 9, my favorite verse. Or 9, verse 4 it is. He says, he is wise in heart and mighty in power, and who hath hardened himself against him and prospered? And the answer is nobody, not one person. Now, verse 6 says, the righteous of the upright shall deliver them. That's positive. But transgressors shall be taken in their own naughtiness. That's negative. Now, these two verses simply say this. God will take care of those who take care of him. If I can give you some probably the best advice, single advice I could ever give anybody, I would simply tell you to the rest of your life, you take care of God as best you can. Put him first in everything you do in your life. Put him first. Give it to him first. Do everything to him first. Take care of him. And I guarantee you, he'll always take care of you. It's just that simple. God will always take care of those that take care of him. But when you get away from God, you're on your own. And brother, when you get on your own, it can be a costly journey. The greatest example of this is the story of Jonah. Jonah is a great story in the Bible that shows what happens when a man is clearly told by God to do this, and the man rationalizes in his mind that God meant for him to do this. God wanted a revival in Nineveh. God wanted those people down there to hear the word of God, and God had them all prepped and ready to go to give them everything that they needed. All he needed was a preacher. So he looked to Jonah. And Jonah, he said to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and cry out against that city because their sins are many. And you know what Jonah did? Jonah knew that Nineveh was the enemy of his his country. And he knew if he went down there in his own mind, it was probably a death sentence. He lost sight of the fact that if God sends you someplace, God's going to take care of you in the place that he sent you. And you know what he does? He says, well, I'm not going down there. And the Bible says he goes down to the docks, and you know what he finds? He finds a ship going to Tarshish. And I, I, I can read between the lines. I know because I've dealt with a million Christians and I've dealt with myself. He gets down there and he says this. Well, Lord, I don't really know if you want me to go to Nineveh. I know that's what you said, but uh, my, my professor said a better rendering of that Greek verb should be this. <clears throat> so here's what I'm going to do. <clears throat> I'm going to go down to the docks and the first ship that I see... I'll know that that's the one you want me to go. That's what he did. That's how you weren't there. I wasn't there, but that's what he did. You say, now, Bob, how can you say that? I know that's what he did. You said, now, Bob, you wasn't even alive back then. How do you know that, that what you just told me is the truth? How do you know that's what he did? Because that's what I do. And may I step into your world for a second? That's what you do. 
We all do it. God clearly told him, go to Nineveh. You're a prophet. Go where the preaching needs to be preached. But he was afraid. And he didn't want to go. And I think it's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. When he goes down there, he finds a ship going to Tarshish. He convinced himself and rationalized himself. This is where God wants me to go. And oh boy, the great last part of that verse. And he paid the fare thereof. When you go your way, you pick up the tab. When you go God's way, he picks up the tab. And oh, what a tab it was. He had to go to school, Whale Belly University. (laughs) What a school. I'm telling you, when you get away from God and you go your own way and you make up your mind, I'm okay, when you know you're not, when you look at people and you, you lie through your teeth and you say, I'm okay, I'm not into this, I'm not doing that, and you know you're lying. You're going your way from God, and I want to tell you something right now. That journey is going to cost you a lot, and you're going to pay the tab thereof. Now, look at the word naughtiness. That's kind of a goofy word. I don't really like that word. You love that word. Well, okay. Real men don't love that word. That's kind of a goofy word. I mean... Have you ever heard me get up here and I, I talk, I say, you're, you're godless, you're wrong, you're in sin. But when I just get up here and say, you're naughty, it just loses something in the process. <laughs> My dog's naughty when she wee-wees on the floor. That's naughty. <laughs> now, I want to teach you something here. That's an old English word. And it's a good English word. But its real meaning has been lost in the 2021st century butchering of the English language. It's lost its punch. It's lost its power. I want you to notice verse 5 says, fall by his own wickedness. And then verse 6 says, taken in his own naughtiness. He uses the word and substitutes the word naughtiness for the word wickedness. They're connected here. Now let's look at the word naughtiness, you naughty people today. The word comes from the word not. It means zero. It means nothing. It means worthlessness. It means something that has no value to it. A naughty person is a worthless person in its correct usage and definition. Now what he's saying here in verse 5 and 6 A child of God that goes his own way is not only wicked, verse 5, in his sins, but to God he's also, verse 6, worthless and of no value to his plan. He's a zero. Now, I know as a child of God, I I do a lot of stupid things. I'll be the first one to confess that to you. Try as I will. I'm a leper. And I do a lot of dumb things. But I want to be honest with you, I could never imagine after all God did for me, in spite of all my issues, in spite of my stupidities, I don't know of anything I would hate more. I can deal with the fact that God says I'm wicked. 
I can handle that. But I just cannot handle the idea that God would ever look at me and say, you're worthless. And yet there's many of God's people that they are worthless. Now, I'm never going to do much for the Lord compared to other people out there in the world. I get it. I'm not aspiring to outdo anybody. I read a story one time, and I, I read books, and I read a lot of material, and I always find things that I think fit me, and then I make that my pattern. And, and that's all I want to be. I don't want to necessarily attain more than that because I think that if I can just get that, I'm under any illusion of myself. If I can just get that, I'll be happy with that because that, so I read this story one time about this family, and they had a dog. And a dog, I don't forget what kind it was. I'm going to say because I like labs, I want to say it was a lab, but it probably wasn't. And anyway, this dog was about 13 years old. It had had its health issue. Family loved the dog. And it had cancer at one point, and they had to take one of its legs off, so it was a three-legged dog. And you may think that's tough, but three-legged dogs get along pretty good. And he was blind in one eye. He had some kind of, you know, get faded. His one eye was completely gone. And his other eye, he couldn't hardly see where he was at. He was old, and, you know, he didn't do a lot of things. He didn't really lay around, and, and they thought about putting him down because of the fact. But he still was tail would wag. He still functioned fairly well. I mean, the quality of life wasn't like he was when he was a young dog, but it was a quality of life, and he just could not bring himself. But he was an old dog, 13 years old, blind in one eye, couldn't see out of the other one, and only got three legs. I'm not sure the condition of his tail. That wasn't in the story. (laughs) One night while everybody slept, the house caught on fire. That dog started barking and screaming and yelling and barking and yelping and woke the whole family up. And that one-eyed, couldn't see out of the other, three-legged dog was credited with saving that family from dying in a fire. Now, I don't ever want to be a Billy Sunday. Could never be that. I never want to be a Billy Graham or a Mordecai Ham or, or any of those guys because I don't have that in me. I'll never want to be a Pete Ruckman. He's way out of my league, a thousand miles a minute. All I want to be in life is just a one-eyed, blind, and can't see the other three-legged dog that can bark and scream and tell you there's a fire of hell you better get out of. Amen. I've never cared what people thought about me in the ministry. They can say all kinds of things, have, do all the time. It never bothers me. But I'll tell you what, the idea in my heart and my mind of God looking down, and I know I'm a sinner, I know I'm worthless, and I know I'm just a blind in one eye, can't see out of the other, three-legged dog. Uh, I get it. But boy, all I want, all, I couldn't stand the fact that God look at me and say, Bob, after all I did for you and you did nothing back for me, you're worthless. You're naughty. You're a zero. And yet there's a lot of God's people that are just like that. They're absolutely worthless. I mean, I ain't kidding you. I mean, they've been saved for how long and never won a soul to Christ? I mean, you know, I I understand that some of you who you're around here and you're in the Bible, you love the Bible, you come to see me from time to time and you're burdened about the fact that you haven't won anybody to Christ. I get that. I'm not, certainly, you're you're fine. You're absolutely fine. I'm talking about somebody who's been saved 20, 30, 40 years. 
and never one time in their life has ever won anybody to Christ. I'm talking about people who have been saved 20, 30 years, never one time read their Bible through. I'm talking people who are, who are leaders in churches and they're doing this and they walk around like they're with the pride of some peacock, like they're great spiritual people. And they haven't done one thing for God. And honestly, when God looks at them, I don't see their heart, don't profess to, but if it goes on the outside, when God looks at that, they're worthless. I don't want to be that way. I'll be the first to tell you, man, I'm a sinner and I got my issues just like everybody else and I have my days just like everybody else, but I want to tell you something. I don't want God looking at me and saying, you're naughty. You're worthless. You're of no value to me, Bob. You lived down there your whole life and you never lifted your finger one time to do one thing for me. And I love you, but you are worthless. Now the third principle, look at verse 7. When a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish, and the hope of the unjust man perisheth. Now, this is all negative. This is all negative. Ain't nothing positive in this one. An unsaved man or a Christian out of fellowship with God, they both have a number of things in common. I don't know if you ever noted that. Even though one's going to heaven and one's going to hell, they still have some, a number of things in common because both will fill their lives with unrealistic expectations. Both will get their lives completely out of balance. Both will get ideas, things involved in things that don't matter, and things that certainly will not take them anywhere in life. They both live completely outside the reality of of a biblical life and fail to see the real picture of life on planet Earth. And yes, again, I understand it's pride that blinds them in both cases. But they completely sidestep God and all he's done for them. And in both cases, saved and lost. And they just forget the plan of God for their life. But I want to tell you something. In both cases, the reality check is death. You can go your whole life lying to yourself, deceiving yourself, trying to deceive everybody else. Saved or lost. You can go through all your life playing the game, playing it your way, doing what you want to do, but there comes a time when the wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish, and the hope of the unjust man perisheth. The greatest reality check for you and me, the day we die. Boy, what a contrast for an unsaved man thinking that there's, convincing himself that there's no God. Believing the fact of a liver, get the idea of a, of, a, of a preacher who gets up every Sunday and says there's no place called hell. One of these positive guys that never talks about judgment. One of these people who believe the Bible's fairy tales. You live your life to the fullest. You party, you eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. What a shock when he hits hell. It's called hedoism in the Bible, in the book of Ecclesiastes, that the philosophy of man, that pleasure is the chief good in life. And then what a reality it will be for the religious man or woman who spent all their life doing good works, being involved in church, 
all because uh, they want to rationalize their way out of a personal sin debt paid for by a personal Savior. A religious world of good works to try to get you to heaven. A religious world of baptism for your salvation. A religious world of sacraments or, or going to a Bible seminary or church membership or even the giving of money. Being a deacon or even a Sunday school teacher. I mean, what a contrast hell will be, the reality of death, when all the expectations that we have come crashing down. I mean, from mass to misery, from baptism to banishment, from riches to wrath, from pleasure to pain. All in the split second of death and all before your family can even hold a funeral. The hope of the unjust man perisheth. But for the saved man, it will be the reality of all that God did for you and all that you didn't do for him. I think the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, 11 for the Christian is called the terror of the Lord. I totally understand why that is because for the first time in our lives, we're going to stand before him where you can stand before him now, but you won't. You're going to stand before him and all of your clutter is going to be out of your life. For the first time, you won't do it here, but for the first time in your life, you're going to look into his eyes and you're going to completely understand the price tag that was paid for your salvation. You're going to completely understand why he died for you, what he wanted you to do, and your whole life that God had for you that you never fulfilled is going to be right there in front of you. You're going to be standing for the one that loved you and gave everything for you that you gave nothing back. I think one of the greatest examples of this in the Bible is Solomon's downfall. And everybody says, and it's partially true, that Solomon's downfall was the women that he hung out with. And I get that. He made leagues with nations that he should not have. I get that. He did a lot of things that violated the law that come back, and he violated the law of sowing and reaping, and it got to him. I get that. But let's go back way after that. Let's don't look at those things as the root problem. Let's go back and look at the very root problem where it started that all those other things just come out of this root problem. And the root problem with Solomon's downfall was the same root problem that we'll have in my downfall and your downfall. Because in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, the Bible says that Solomon was tasked with building God's house. And the Bible says all of the beauty that he did there he labored for seven years, and it took seven years to build that house. Then in the very next chapter, in verse 1, 7, 1, it says, but Solomon was in building his own house 13 years. When you spend more time building your world than you do God's world in your life, you're going down. I, I think of the book of, a book of Haggai. When you think of Ezra and Nehemiah, when they go back and they rebuild, you got to put Haggai, even though it's way back in the Bible, you got to put that in that same three-book section there. Because Haggai is written 16 years after Ezra and Nehemiah when they go back to rebuild. 
And when Haggai, the prophet, writes to the leaders of Israel, he's writing to them saying, you know what? It's been 16 years since you started to build that temple and you have stopped building God's temple. And you know what you're doing? You're now taking all the material that God set aside to build his temple and you're building your own homes with them. You talk about unrealistic expectations, taking what belongs to God and using it for yourself. Now, how negative is I understand why people don't like negative. I get it. Getting, getting brighter every moment to me. All your plans, all your goals, all your worldly pleasures. And then comes death, the reality now of whatever God did and where you were. And you know what you face? You face life's final tally. You know, that's going to be something. And I have a hard time preaching on this to you because I'm going to be in worse shape probably than most of you. But life's final tally. I mean, I can just see it. I don't think it works this way, but let me just for the illustration point, life's final tally. Rapture takes place. We're up in heaven. Oh, God's great clipboard. In my lifetime, Camlon, $60,000. Missions, God's work, zero. In my lifetime, dog food, $150,000. Got five dogs. Food for God's people, zero. Oh, it's going to be a reality check. Hey, I've seen some of God's people, and I'm not fighting it. I've seen God, some of God's people, their lawn is absolutely meticulous. They, they got garden of roses, and all of those things are beautiful. And many a times I've went into somebody's house and, 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 and thought to myself, man, the, the lawn is beautiful. The garden is absolutely beautiful. But the kids are lost on drugs and alcohol in a mess. Mom and dad were great at planting a garden in the back, but the most important garden garden God ever gave them, they failed at. That's a tally sheet coming up. Uh, when I fly anywhere, I'm always amazed. When you fly over a city, all the swimming poles that people have. I mean, you don't think about it much. When you're flying in, when you're looking out the window, man, they're everywhere. Everybody's got one. And I know what I'm about to say isn't true for everybody. I get, I get it. But boy, I'll tell you what. I knew a guy one time, he was so meticulous with his swimming pool. I mean, he worked, he was so worried about getting the right balance of chemicals in the water. Because you get too much, you burn your skin off. You don't get enough. I mean, he was so care- he was so careful of, of, of measuring everything and getting. And I thought to myself, you know what? You are so worried about the balance of the water and the chemicals in your pool, but your own life is so out of balance you couldn't even get it back together. 
Now, I don't mean to be crass here, but he was, he, he, was, he was so finicky about it, he was afraid people were going to go to the bathroom in his swimming pool. So he found this chemical that you put in the water that if you go to the bathroom in his swimming pool, it turns the red dye all around you. Now, if you're smart, you don't need that. Just look at that glassed over look in her eye. <laughs> Everybody else is splashing around in this standing there. <laughs> and, and, and there's a way, hey, there's a rationalization around everything. If you're in that guy's pool and, you know, the red dye starts to come out, when everybody starts looking, just scream, shark, shark, thrash around. <laughs> this is a true story. He was a good friend of mine. He had this long pool with this little basket on the end. And he would go out three or four times a day, like Moses going out to check on the flock. Then he'd take this long deal. And he'd reach out and he'd dip this out. He'd say, you got to get these out. This will clog up my pipes. I'm thinking to myself, man, you know what? If you would be as interested in taking this long pull right here and dipping out the crap that's in your life, you'd be a lot better off. Then he had this little thing that went across the bottom of the pool. I, I thought it was alive, man. It was this little four-wheel thing. And it had a long thing on it that went up and it, it worked the whole bottom of the pool. And it ate the junk off the bottom. And he'd stand there with his big old stick watching that. Chemicals all balanced out. <laughs> Keeping an eye on everybody in the pool for anything red. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this guy's life, he doesn't care anything about God. He doesn't care anything about the Bible. But God's people spend so much time on things like that, working out the balances of life when their own life spiritually so far out of balance they couldn't, they couldn't even believe it. That's just the way it is, man. Let me tell you, when death comes, it's the end of our stupid, ridiculous expectations. But for the child of God doing God's work, it's only the beginning of what God's got for you. But no cross, no crown. Now look at verse 8. Here's the fourth thing. The righteous is delivered out of trouble, that's positive, and the wicked cometh in his stead, that's negative. Now, doctrinally, this is the Jew at the second coming of Christ being delivered out of the hand of the Antichrist, if you don't have that in here. Historically, he's making a reference to the many times that God delivered the nation of Israel, like in the book of Judges. But inspirationally, it's me and you. It's God taking care of us in every situation and bringing us through life by God giving us our deliverance through the biblical principles. The last part of the verse says, the wicked cometh in his stead. He's simply saying, when you don't do what God says, whether it's Israel or us, then instead of deliverance comes the wickedness. That's what he's saying. And when you get to that point, as I've told you before, the heavens are iron and the earth is brass. In a Christian's life, do we either go up the levels or you go down the levels? Now look at the last thing here in verse 9. A hypocrite with his mouth destroyeth his neighbor. That's negative. But through knowledge shall the just be delivered. That's positive. 
Now, in closing, this is one of the <coughs> greatest reasons <coughs> I think that you should never be afraid to serve the Lord. One of the greatest promises in all the Bible uh, to the minister, uh, to the pastor, to the Christian, to the Bible teacher, anybody who's going to invest their life with people. And the reason why this is so important, because you've got to know this, in the ministry, there will people who will hate you for what you do. Now, I know that seems possible, impossible, and that seems for some of you young Christians like it won't compute. But you've got to stop and look at it this way. Jesus was the only man on the planet who never did wrong to anybody at any time, any place, and yet everybody wanted nothing to do with him. And I'm telling you, when you get into the ministry and you start doing God's work, there will people who will hate you for what you do. And what you do is preach the truth. And you'll find them in, as God's people, and you'll find them as unsaved people. In the day and age we live in, you'll find more God's people than you do unsaved people. And in the ministry and working with people, you'll always follow two simple rules that are based on verse 9 of Proverbs here. One, keep your emotions out of it. Two, keep your biblical principles in it. Operate by the principles. Don't take it personal. Stick with the book. God called you to do a job. Do it to the best of your ability. Do it with a good conscience toward God. Somebody doesn't like it, let them take a long walk off a short pier. Don't worry about what they say about you. Don't worry about what they say they can do to you. They can't do anything to you because God already told you he'll deliver you. Jesus said about his brethren who were betraying him and crucifying him, he didn't take it personal. He simply said, Father, forgive them for though they are not what they do. He saw the bigger picture. He didn't focus on what he was going through. He focused on their not getting the scriptures and what they were going to have to go through. He never took it personally. God's people who slander you, and they will. God's people who talk about you, and they will. God's people who lie about you, and they will. God's people who have lunch together and you're the main course, they will. But it's not you. It's the truth that you preach. Dirty Christians will always hate anything clean. Now, that's just the truth in life. Truth. You're just the person that truth flows through. The messenger of God. And they hate the message, so they want to kill the messenger. I mean, I've never understood why that's so hard for people to grasp. It's all through the Bible. Esau hated Jacob. Jacob was part of the promised seed. Esau wasn't. Ishmael hated Isaac. Isaac was the promised seed. Ishmael was not. Israel hated the prophets. God sent the prophets with the truth of God to the nation of Israel, and the people hated them, killed them, said some of the most nastiest stuff about them you ever saw. Wasn't it the scribes and the Pharisees that hated Jesus? Wasn't it the Roman Catholic Church that hated New Testament Christianity? Isn't it modern Christianity who hates the Bible? And worldly, dirty Christians will hate you when you try to do right. And you try to stay clean. But you see, that's the problem. 
the Bible's light. Preaching will spread that light. And it exposes all the dark corners of our lives. And you can't pretend anymore. The real Bible-based Christianity has now been brought forth. Real Bible-based what it is to be a Christian and what it is to have a New Testament church has been laid out. And you and your lifestyle, along with everything in your life, you now suddenly don't fit into that pattern. And it's like somebody in your mind has a searchlight on you. So to shift the light off yourself, you attack the people with the message. And that's why they'll hate you. The preaching of the word of God, they suddenly become the elephant in the room. The church gets on fire, but they don't. Their wood's wet. When everybody and everything gets moving for God, you stick out like a sore thumb. Or maybe I should say a leper eating finger food at somebody's party. Your own. And they don't like that. They don't like being exposed. They, when the whole church moves on and somebody refused not to move forward, everybody sees it. You can't hide it. You can't hide when the whole church is going one way and you're not going at all. And you've got to suddenly try to convince that 200 people in a church, 500 people in a church, 1,000 people in a church are all wrong, and you're the only one that's right. That doesn't work very well. So you got to get out of that place. But it can't be you. So it's always got to be somebody else. But you missed something. You missed the last part of verse 9. What a promise. But thou through knowledge shall the just be delivered. You know, I always say to people, when you don't understand something right then or some situation looks confusing, I always say, when nobody will tell, just be patient because time will always tell. A lot of times situations don't reveal themselves in the short term, but they certainly reveal themselves in the long term. Just give it some time. Old Dr. Ruckman used to say, and boy, any man who's ever been clobbered and and butchered and slaughtered and lied about, I mean, I've seen people take photos of him out of here, Photoshop him out, put him in a bar with a woman, three or four women, and then put it on Facebook or put it on the Internet. I I mean, I'm just telling you. But you know what? He never took it personal, never did in all of his life. You know what he always used to say? I've heard him say it many times. He'd say, you know what? Every time somebody attacks me, God just gives me another ministry or another blessing. He says, I don't wish they'd stop it because they're bothering me. I wish they'd stop it because I can't stand any more blessings or any more ministries right now. You see, God keeps blessing the child of God in spite of his enemies of truth. People who are worthless and will do nothing will always attack those who are of value and do something. Their lives, their family, their kids, deeper and deeper into their transgression because pride is their power. And listen, the heaven is iron and the earth is brass. Nothing's working for them. 
There has been never in the history of Bible Christianity, ever, one dirty, rotten, selfish, prideful, wicked Christian who ever stopped anything that God was part of or what God was going to do. It just keeps getting better, and they just keep getting worse. I think of J. Frank Norris, probably the most hated man in all of Christianity in the 20th century, if not beyond that. He started back in the early part of this uh, last century uh, at the Southern Baptist Convention in the Baptist Church. They had went into great apostasy, and that old boy took on the whole Southern Baptist Convention. They hated him. They tried to kill him. They tried to slander him. They took newspaper articles on in him. They did everything they could. I mean, they sent people down there to kill him. They had a guy one time come into his into his called him on the phone and says, I'm coming over there and kill you. He said, well, make it quick. I'll be in my office till 4.30. And the guy comes in, pulls out a gun, Jade Frank Norris outdraws him and shoots him dead on the floor. Then from that point on, he was called the pistol-toting preacher. He's preached on alcohol. He preached on booze. And a big, big public mayor or councilman or somebody had a lot of power, was trying to put him out of business and trying to slander him. And one night that guy was, uh, was out there drinking with uh, three or four of his little floozy gals and they were speeding down the road and they missed a turn or something and hit that thing and the car exploded, blew the guy car apart and the guy's brains were splattered over there. Old J. Frank Norris went down and took a mason jar, picked up part of that guy's brain, put it in that jar, put it on the pulpit on Sunday morning and preached on it. God just kept blessing him, kept blessing him, kept blessing him. You have a Bible this morning because of J. Frank Norris. Everything that this church does, everything that you do, everything that Ruckman does, everything that anybody does who believes that Bible, whether they know it or not, whether they believe it or not, or have any clue or not, the judgment seat of Christ will go back to that one man that had the courage to stand against the opposition when they wanted to put him out of the ministry. They wanted to slander him, and he believed that verse that he would be delivered from the mouth of the wicked, the hypocrite. Because God will deliver you. It's just that simple. I mean, they keep buying new trucks, bigger homes, keep going out and do all this and having a great time, you know what, and all to make themselves feel like they're doing good, and God just keeps blessing, 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 and blessing. You'd think they'd figure it out, but then again, they've deceived themselves. Never one time in the Bible did the devil or any of his crowd, saved or lost, ever stop what God was doing one time. God just uses it for his honor and glory. He destroys them, and then he keeps on going. So get used to it. There's always a blessing in it for you. Learn to enjoy it. Something better is coming your way. It doesn't matter what hypocrites with his or her mouth says about you. God will always deliver you and not deliver them. And it will drive them crazy. I got people who hated this church, hated some of you people in this church, and hated me. Left this church and went someplace else because they didn't like us. But you know what? Every Monday and Tuesday, they're on that website listening to what I say. So, hello. <laughs> hello. Now, I've always looked at the ministry, and I'm a practical guy. <laughs> I've always looked at the ministry as a long road trip through life. Like driving on a vacation, you know, from the East Coast to the West Coast. 
stopping to look at all the points of interest. My favorite movie is Family Vacation. And the old family thruster going down the road. But I've learned in this travel through life, no, no matter where you go, no matter what state you're in, one thing is always a sure thing. And that's at the end of the day, you're going to have a lot of bug splouts on your windshield. Dead bugs have destroyed themselves all over your windshield. Now, do you stop your trip? Do you turn around and go back? You cancel your vacation, get on the phone and cancel all your plans? Of course you don't. You just pull into a gas station, tell the guy to fill her up. He picks up that old sponge and wipes the bugs off, cleans it off, and, uh, and off you go. Because people like that in your life are just like bugs on my windshield of life. The hypocrite with his mouth or his Facebook, the brave soul hiding behind his computer keyboard, just pull in on Sunday morning, let God's Spirit fill her up, and take the water of the Word of God of what you're doing and wipe the windshield off with the bugs and then just keep on going. These five principles will be some of the most practical verses in all your life, but they're based on a negative and a positive because life is negative and positive. And the moment anybody starts to take the negative out and just put all the positive in, you're going to get out of balance. You allow the positive to build you up, but you also allow the negative to grow you up. Remember, don't ask God to change the situation. He's the one that put it in your life in the first place. Just ask God to grow you up through the situation. Well, we'll hold up there. We'll get into five more next week. Let's pray, and I'll call you up here in about